Untitled Beatles podcast. <laughs> Poor TJ, man. All right, hey, man, how you doing? Happy New Year. You broke your arm? Yeah, I, I, fr- I fractured a bone in my arm, uh, so no keyboard today, unfortunately. I can't ah. get to my setup. Um, so uh, you'll just have to imagine Imagine there's more keyboard Original John Lennon vocal <laughs> By the way, well, it's on the box set The new box set, the new one that's coming the out The new one the that will come 57th out. anniversary Yeah, right? I they can't wait They re-remastered I can't the wait The new mix has been demixed and remixed <laughs> Great, $200 Gotta get my mitts on that Thank you, Calderstone <laughs> <laughs> uh, It puts the mitts in mitzvah I don't know what's going on Yeah, so I did, um, I fractured my uh, arm and, uh Still a good amount of pain, but you know what makes me happy? Tony's talking Beatles. How are you? Happy New Year to you. Yeah, thanks, man. I'm doing all right. Welcome to the Untitled Beatles podcast. I'm Tony. Yeah, but I'm not. Let's move on. <laughs> well, there we you go. get it. I'm Tony. Yeah. The original, by the way, our first production meeting, we were trying to think of Beatle pun titles, and Tony kept going, let's call it I'm Tony. And that's what I have to deal with. <laughs> Well, happy 2021. Um, We thought we would kick it off. This It's going to be a great year. I already know it. And we decided uh, we're going to kick it off with, uh, I think it's our both our favorite McCartney album, McCartney 2. Wildlife. Oh, I I actually do love Wildlife. I do too. Uh, McCartney 2, Tony, is in the middle of my McCartney album uh, list. I actually don't hate this album. It is also not a go-to. It's not very often. I'm like, God, I haven't heard Front Parlor in a while. Ooh. So, (laughs) you know, it's like, oh, Yeah, so it is is not a favorite album. It is also, for a lot of people, it's like a least favorite. It is far from my least favorite McCartney album. Where does it sit on your McCartney list? Definitely in the middle. Um, But it was one of the very few McCartney records until recently that I actually owned. Uh, I owned more Lennon solo stuff. Um, I only had like Ram. And then because I saw McCartney 2 at the shop, you know, for under five bucks or whatever it was, I had to grab it. And I had, of course, known about, you know, its content. So it was an (laughs) Irish. Was content just in air quotes, Tony? (laughs) (laughs) What, like you, I actually do like, I actually do like this record. Uh, the more I listen to it, it's, it's definitely not my favorite, um, but it has its moments for me, which include Front Parlor. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yes. It's if, if you like something that vaguely seems like the theme song to a Meredith Baxter Bernie dramedy, Front Parlor is for you. <laughs> like, hey, remember that show that was on NBC for two Thursdays and you never saw again? The theme song was Front Parlor. <laughs> Is this from Frank's Place? Oh, that was on CBS. They were like, uh, <laughs> nice. Great, great, great Tim Reed show about life in New Orleans. Loved yeah, Tim Reed. So funny. His whole role, I'll talk about WKRP every episode we do, but the role of Venus Flytrap in an era where like most black comedians on sitcoms were kind of like J.J. Evans, uh, George Jefferson kind of wisecracking, you know, almost black caricatures, Venus Flytrap was a former school teacher who served in the military who was kind of like the sage wisdom of the station. So it's another thing that was genre busting about WKRP was here you have uh, the black character not used for just straight up uh, comedy relief. You had him be the soul of the show. And he was the overnight guy. Uh, he he was a late night guy. He was uh, he was doing evening's evening drive. Oh oh, I 
always thought he was overnight. So w- 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 did they have an overnight character on KRP? They never showed his face. His name was Moss Steiger. And there was a weird running joke where he tried to kill himself a couple times in season one. Weird. And then you never heard that joke again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they're getting dark, man. <laughs> the P stands for dark. See <laughs> <laughs> if I were the keyboard, I'd play the more you know right now. Here's what's great about this record and bringing up WKRP, which WKRP aired from 78 to 82. This album recorded during the heart of that show's run, recorded in 79, came out in early 1980. And uh, at the time, this album was critically demolished and especially in the States, barely sold. It started real hot, debuted high, and then was off the charts pretty quickly. I think it's still one of his least selling albums. So tell us a little bit about the beginnings of McCartney too. Sure, yeah. It starts Well, I go take a <laughs> shit. <laughs> yeah, where do you got to be? You got to <laughs> that sounded like something you say when you have something else to do. Yeah, Tony, take us on this long uh, discussion. I'll be back in 10. So, it started in July of 79 up in Scotland again. So, going back to McCartney, his debut, a lot of that started up in Scotland on his farm. This this too he he started working on some songs. He set 20 songs aside. He was experimenting with synthesizers. He grew a mustache. Not a mustache. <laughs> a mustache. A mustache. L.A. has changed you. I don't like it. <laughs> I actually quite liked his his look during this time. He looked he looked pretty svelte. And, and uh, there's a word people are afraid to use, but I'll use it to describe how he looked in 1980. Comely. He was a very comely gent. <laughs> we'll just leave that there. But however he looks on the album cover, he looks super high and very surprised. Yeah. He's got like a Belushi take on the album cover. Uh, totally. Yeah. It actually looks like one of those SNL bumpers, you know, between the commercials in the 70s, you know, where it they had, they had like this effect on it and like a glow behind them or whatever. Uh, so it was very of its time. Also, 1980, of course, was the pivotal year for SNL and the whole thing changed. And that was the year Lorne Michaels didn't do it, right? 1980, I think. Was that when, was it Dick Ebersol who, yeah. who did it for it, right? <laughs> yeah, it was a football guy who took over <laughs> SNL. <laughs> Musical guest Joe Theismann. All right. <laughs> Crack. <laughs> he gone. Snap. <laughs> what, still the worst injury on on. Television sports, I think you've ever seen. Yeah, I saw that live. Did you see that live? I didn't see it live. I've seen it several times since, but I didn't see it live. No. Oh, I saw it live. And yeah, you didn't know what happened until they played it in slow mo from the reverse angle. We'll look at it with the reverse angle one more time. And I suggest your stomach is weak, you just don't watch. Legendary quarterback Joe Theismann never played another down of football. Yeah, so Paul just wanted to make music for his friends. That was the whole point. These were these like screw around songs that he was just kind of compiling. He had no intention to release them. Cut to January 1980, and the Wings tour begins in Japan. It's his first time playing Japan, I believe, since 66 when the Beatles were there. Since Budokan, yeah. Yeah, man. And he had had, I think, you know, he had been arrested for pot in back in the day. And so Japan had these very strict, like, anti-pot, whatever, laws. So they were very wary of him visiting, or they wouldn't let him come over until 1980. And so Paul decides to (laughs) bring over a bunch of pot. (laughs) And, yeah, he's busted at the airport. He spent nine 
days in jail. Yeah. Crazy. That is just crazy, man. But I guess from what I've read, he was like a model inmate and he, you know, it's perfect Paul. He like found, he read the room. (laughs) (laughs) He played his part. He was a showman about it. He was like a showman of an inmate. (laughs) And he got out of there. And people loved him. That's the reason why. Because he came off as as being so genuine. I I read somewhere like he was leading other inmates in song. Like it's, (laughs) it's, it's just wild. He got royalties on that, too, so that's pretty good. (laughs) Right, he bought the rights. (laughs) So, uh, yeah, so the Wings tour is canceled, and while he was kind of in this mode, uh, he put out these songs, McCartney 2, in a collection. uh, Actually, I forget how many songs. What is it? It's like 11 or 12 or something, I think. Yeah, I think it's 11. And then there's the bonus tracks, because I didn't get this album. uh, I first, like, I knew coming up, pretty young and we'll get to that first track in a moment but i first got into this album when the cd reissues when capital got paul's catalog back from columbia and this album was originally on columbia uh cap see when cds were not new but new ish by the mid 80s i think 87 capital reissued this on cd and the bonus tracks on there were check my machine and secret friend and even though i knew they were bonus tracks as a 13 year old i've always associated those as being part of this of this album um, and we'll, we'll get to those tracks in, in a few minutes, but yeah, this album is fascinating to me in that it was exactly 10 years after the first McCartney album was released. As people know, who've listened to the show, uh, in this year, 2020, so 40 years ago, they released, um, McCartney two, and then now they have McCartney three out. So 1970 McCartney, not called McCartney one, but now we kind of refer to it as that. Um, like Zeppelin 4 is in Zeppelin 4, but you call it Zeppelin 4. Um, McCartney 2 is 1980, and McCartney 3 is 2020. Uh, so there's cool symmetry to that about beginning a new era, beginning a new decade. Um, and this really did feel super influenced. There's no other McCartney record, even the experimental stuff like Firemen and some of the other stuff with Youth. Nothing else feels like it could be a Talking Heads album oh right that's what's so weird and cool about this is it's a very strange moment in time of talking heads influence and paul mccartney music and that's one of the things that keeps it to me uh, if not ahead of its time kind of beautifully of its time off with coming up this is a very poppy song to me it sounds it almost sounds like michael jackson like off the wall yeah well that's what keeps it so cool is that it's a poppy song that's also funky yeah it's 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 just got all these cool things going on and for those who are listening who hear us talk about coming up we need to establish pretty quickly that in the states and i'm pretty sure in canada the official single was the b-side of the coming up single the most of the world, the hit was this recorded version of Coming Up that kicks off McCartney 2. 
in the States and in Canada, the big hit was the live version with Wings from Glasgow the previous year. That's the one they play in classic rock radio. That's got kind of a more disco feel to it, like a rock disco. And this one's got kind of like a pop funk thing. The same song, both incredible, read so differently. And that's another fucking cool... I think it's one of the most important songs in Paul McCartney's catalog. Wow. He had a worldwide hit with a song played two different ways. Yeah, that's wild. At the, at the same time. You want a better kind of future One thing we didn't mention, so the live version obviously is with Wings, but on the studio version and for the rest of this album, this is all Paul playing every single instrument. So uh, we should remember to mention that with all with one, two, and three, it's basically all Paul. Uh, mine is sliding. We'll, we'll get to yeah. We'll get to the track sliding from McCarty three next week, but yeah, it's <laughs> right. it's, it's it's all Paul. Yeah, man. Well, I've always liked this song. You know, this is the song that inspired John Lennon to get back into the game. He heard it on the radio and thought, oh, that's pretty good. And it kind of got his competitive spirit up again. Like, oh, but I think I can, I can do better perhaps, or at least just as good after his five year hiatus, you know, after rock and roll. It's cool. If you read the, those last Lennon interviews of playboy that he was listening to the radio. I mean, John Lennon was keeping up to date with what was going on. One of my favorite quotes, he's talking about the music the Beatles influenced. John goes, there's nothing wrong with the Bee Gees. They're a, they're a damn good group. It's like even John Lennon in 1980 sticking up for the Bee Gees. So John <laughs> Lennon knew what, what was going on. And I think, yeah, he was inspired by this, um, this particular song. Um, this is one that Paul has done live in just about every iteration of his touring band since 1989. Wow. Uh, it's And he does an even kind of funkier version. He started toying with it on that 89-90 tour. Funkier? Yeah. It's even, it, it kicks it off his then drummer, Chris Witten. Mm. I don't know much about him other than I think he was a drummer briefly for the Pretenders. Chris Witten okay. was part of his first touring band. And it starts off as kind of a drum solo for him. And then with Hamish Stewart on guitar and Paul on bass, they just lay into this kind of almost average white band groove. So it is even <laughs> funkier live. That's wild. But uh, yeah, so this is, again, the importance of the song. He's never let go of this. There's certain songs he's never played, certain songs he's played a handful of times. But this song is like almost like Band on the Run in terms of how often he does it live, which I've always found fascinating. Yeah, it must be fun to play. I really like that, that solo sound. It's, it's real wacky. Some sort of synth thing going on. Yeah, that and that that synthesized kind of horn section. Uh, th there's some notes I want to give on the song that have, are so weird in the McCartney discography, because in America and Canada, the uh, live version became the one radio stations wanted to play because it was issued as the studio version on the A side and the B side was a live version and then a, a 
an unreleased track from, uh, I think, Venus and Mars, uh, Lunchbox Odd Socks was the other B-side. But demand in the States was so big, Columbia went to the expense of issuing a one-sided record of the live version of Coming Up with copies of the album. Yeah, man. I think I have that. Yeah. Yeah, that's right, because it came with the record. That's right. That's right. Which is, I mean, how many artists at the time can convince a record company or their company says, well, we have to press this as part of the record somehow. So they just press 45s included it with the record, which is crazy. Now here's the thing, the live version that is on this 45, the edit of this has, which was in print forever has never been heard digitally. Really? The live version that's on wingspan and all the best, the two compilations that followed it, um, have an earlier fade out. The live version that is on the 2011 deluxe reissue uh, cuts off the, the count-in. It starts with three, four. For some reason, the deluxe issue of this omits the, the full count. And the version that you're missing, which, which is crazy, yeah. the version that you're missing at, in the fade-out, if you can find the 45, not heard anywhere but this 45, which sold millions of copies, it was number one for weeks, is Paul leading an audience chant at Glasgow to celebrate Kenny Doglish, the former Liverpool <laughs> football player. And because he's doing it in Scotland, they all start to boo, and that's where it fades out. And you can't find that anywhere but the Columbia, and I assume the Parlophone, the British... Uh, pressing of the 45. It's so weird. The McCartney 2 archive edition that came out in 2011 yeah. has the radio edit of Waterfalls, and they don't have the, <laughs> the 45 edit of this. It's almost like someone in McCartney's camp just didn't know, and I know this is minutia, and I know this is weird, and I know I've had too many edibles today, <laughs> but it's so strange that the biggest song from one of the biggest, uh, on the album from one of the biggest recording artists ever, they can't even get the live version they put on the remaster, right? It's weird. Do you think it's because of the booing? <laughs> you know? Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> but it's booing because he's bringing up a Liverpool football player in Scotland, I think. Yeah, but... it's like It's like good booing. <laughs> Not like stop playing spies like us booing, which he's never done live. It just felt like a good reference. It's true. He never did just get out a film projector and just play the movie Spies Like Us during a concert. <laughs> Easily the biggest song on this album. It's one that is still within uh, uh, Paul McCartney's psyche because of how much he plays it. And again, same song, massive hit, two different versions. Uh, you name me someone else who can pull that off. It's it's like definitive Paul, both musically and from a storytelling standpoint. Yeah, man. And the video is cool, too, because it has him playing all the instruments in the video. And he's like a version of himself. He's a version of one of the guys from that band, Sparks. It's it's cool. It's cool. And he plays Beatle Paul. He, he, yes. After being so reticent to do Beatles songs, he only did five Beatles songs in that wing store. And now in, in this video... It, probably recorded in 79 this video he's playing beetle paul with a hoffner it's kind of neat yeah it's a great way to kick off the record and then it goes into this other song uh let's do it man let's do it the cult classic temp sec secretary 
temporary secretary. Parentheses, temporary secretary. This is the most annoying <laughs> Paul you. McCartney song ever written. And I don't say that as a necessarily bad thing. This is the most cloying, obnoxious, overstay its welcome. Uh, like, and you know the beauty of time? Like, what scares me, what scares the fuck out of me, Tony, is one day people are going to go, you know, Trump really wasn't all that bad because revisionist uh. history is what's killing us. People have hated the song from 1980 to like 20, when the album came out again, 2011, people are like, oh, maybe it's not that bad. No, (laughs) your initial instinct is right. This song is like, I get it. Again, I'm not even saying I hate it, but it's bad. Temporary Secretary is objectively a bad song. Discuss. Hot take. It's a little hot. It's a little hot. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> actually it's not hot you've had this one for a while yeah we've I, so i first heard this song probably in the early to mid 90s and at that time i was in a joke band called los changos malos we never played a gig we just <laughs> this is when i'm in high school and you know we had a four track and we would you know drink some wine and write some music making fun of 80s music like Thomas Dolby and Gary Newman and that kind of stuff and uh like I remember writing a song with the lyric uh like 2000 megabytes in my calculator watch and like singing it <laughs> like a robot and I had not heard temporary secretary yet like cut to a year or two later and I put this song on and it's like oh that's the music I was trying to make. <laughs> <With that. laughs> oh no! That crazy. So I always, I've always liked it. Uh, ironically, you know, because I'm also Gen X, and that's just part of it. You just have to be ironic. You don't have a choice. <laughs> I love it though. I actually, I, I, <laughs> I do love it. I think that sequencing. I think it's an ARP synthesizer. I heard he rented a. An ARP for these sessions. Which is also um, my favorite was my favorite seal noise. <laughs> seal the, the artist, the sexy <laughs> R and B artist. <laughs> is Seal really R and B? Do you put Seal up like Otis Redding, Stevie Wonder, Seal? I, yeah. Well R and B changed. R and B took it somewhere in the eighties, R and B became something else. R and B became slow jams and you know, Chicago's hometown hero, R. Kelly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's not R and B to me. Um, that's R and P here, R. Kelly. That's what that is. See, there you go. Somewhere, Jim DeRogatis, I hope, enjoyed that, that, that joke. I don't condone the behavior. I no, make very none of clear. us. Yeah, we're not. Yeah, no, fuck that guy. So, uh, <laughs> synthesizers used on this record include the ARP synthesizer. That was the thing that made the sequencing on Baba O'Reilly slash Teenage Wasteland, if you want to, yeah, that one. And then, uh, he used a Roland Jupiter 4, a Yamaha CS80, and I think the a mini Moog. And I'm going to say Moog. You know why, Moog heads? Because Moog, <laughs> Moog is more fun to say. It should be Moog. Revisionist history. Thank you. North Carolina. Sweet fitting on my knee. She can keep her job if she gets 
Jackson won't I But Mr. Mops, I won't need her long All I need is help for a little while We can take vacation and learn to smile And a temporary secretary is what I need For to do the job I need a It's got the worst lyrics of any Paul McCartney song ever written, including Mary Had a Little Lamb, including More Smooths than the Gray Fucking Goose. Um, I mean, the the line, and again, I, I don't know why I need to qualify this every show. I love this man. Uh, he yes. is my hero. He is my absolute hero, but I'm sorry. She can be a neurosurgeon if she's doing nothing urgent is the <laughs> dumbest. Li- it might be the dumbest line in rock history. It, like, it's almost offensive. Oh, wow. <laughs> Almost offensive. She she can be a diplomat, but I don't need a girl like that. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I mean, every couplet sucks. Can you send her quick? Cause my regular has been getting sick. Like, this song must have made John be like, "No, I'm good. I don't, I don't need to go to the studio." <laughs> well, in defense of this song, I I don't think he was going for amazing lyrics. I think this is. This is like dad's idea of new wave. You know what I mean? <laughs> you know? So he's like putting in like, oh, I think the punk rockers, this is their kind of lyrics, you know? <laughs> You're so right. And that's why he's singing in that monotone, which is like, remember that cartoon show, Gem, Truly Outrageous? Truly, truly, truly outrageous. And the, the villain band was called the Misfits. Yeah. Not Glenn Danzig's Misfits, <laughs> but. <laughs> I love when dancing was on Gem. I need. Fresh blood, like the misfits, Pizzazz, Roxy, and Stormer. And again, that was after Temporary Secretary. So in a way, in a way, it's like he's being influenced, but he's also influencing, you know, cartoon punk. <laughs> Great. Well, <laughs> wonderful. Uh, I, I, but the one note I really took down, because I, I've uh, this is a song I've heard many, many times, including he brought this back live a couple years ago. And, like, I mean, the man's never done Take It Away live. Why are you wasting <laughs> a spot in your running order for fucking temporary secretary? To, you know why? For people like me, TJ. For people like me. <laughs> I, I get so frustrated. It's like I get that Miss Vanderbilt's a, a fine song, but like you've never done no more Lonely Nights live. Like, what are you doing, Paul? I want to go over his running order with him with him at some point. Well, I know how hard it is for young girls these days, in the face of everything, to stay on the right track. She can be a belly dancer. I don't need a true romancer. She can be a diplomat, but I don't need a girl like that. She can be a neurosurgeon if she's doing nothing. Anyway, back back to Kenny Douglas. He played football for Liverpool. Boo. No, my, my my note on this is throw your sequencer away, Paul. Is all I wrote down for this. Let let's move on yeah. to one that is another kind of anomaly in the Paul catalog that was just him noodling and being inspired by a blues film and writing this great little blues tune called "On the Way." Yeah, yeah, and you know, it's so I think it's okay. I think it's all right. It, it, it doesn't suck, but it's also very, like, Kingston Mines, if you will. It's very <laughs> Northside Blues. 
<laughs> Take it easy. <laughs> Take it. I mean, I mean you're right. <laughs> okay, 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 okay. Uh, n- 1998 me is not real pleased with your assessment of this. <laughs> Well, you know, 1994 me is not doesn't like your temporary secretary. There's definitely worse blues. You know what I mean? Blues is a thing that it's very much like Chuck Berry or whatever. It's like only a, uh, there's a certain magic about it when it's done right. And most people that try and do it end up sounding like county fair bands. You know what I mean? So he gets he gets closer than most, I think, in, in that world. Well, and I think there's two reasons for that. One, he keeps the song weird with all that echo and maybe some delay and right. uh, yeah. the, those weird kind of little guitar licks that kind of seemingly fly out of nowhere. The bass goes off key. There's like there's some bass mistakes, I yeah, think. Yeah, yeah. So I think the fact that it's weird keeps it cool. And like definitely as you and I've talked about a million times on the show. The influence of if not necessarily true blues like the Stone like the Stones went to Chess Records and they were in Chicago and all that stuff. The Beatles weren't that, but they love black music enough to at least be understand the context of it and know how to not sing blues in a sucky way. It's why you know the, I, I, again, Little Richard not a blues act. No, but he's rock and roll. All understanding that primal scream. Little Richard came from the blues. Sure. There'd be no Little Richard without blues. So even though there's some separation, I think Paul pulls it off because it's within his DNA somewhere. Yeah, man, for sure. But yeah, this is now we're getting into the whole McCartney style of record. And when I say McCartney, I mean these solo one-man band records. There's a throwaway element to this album yeah. starting here. Um, and then it goes into this Big old ballad, Waterfalls. What, what do you think of this one, man? I'm curious. Uh, I'll tell you what I think about Waterfalls. And you know how much I love Paul Ballads um, and Paul Vallis, former. Uh, who is Paul Vallis? He's the Secretary of Education. What did Paul Vallis do? Oh, I don't know. I don't know that one. All right. Who, Paul Vallis. Listeners, who is Paul Vallis? I know we're all going to go. Uh, when we Google it, we'll all go, oh, I'm that's gonna... Paul Vallis. Paul Vallis. We're in Chicago to meet the Greek-American who has been rising in local politics. In fact, Paul Vallas might be the next mayor of the Windy City. Here's what I say about Waterfalls. It's the lowest ever charting Paul McCartney single on Billboard. It, it bubbled under, got to 106. Um, Paul McCartney loves this song. I, T.J. Shanoff, do not. I do <laughs> believe this is the one that John Lennon heard. And said, I think Paul sounds depressed because Paul oh. heard a couple different songs from this record. Excuse me. John heard a couple songs from this record and said, um, yeah, Paul sounds depressed. And then when he was called out on it, that's when he mentioned hearing coming up and digging that. So this song to me and uh, whether I mean the 80s McCartney ballads, Wanderlust, 
Um, uh, so bad. No more lonely nights. I love a good. Mac- Only love remains from Press to Plays. One of my favorite weird McCartney ballads. This song to me, it it is just it drives me nuts, and the video drives me nuts. The <laughs> melancholy, like it's from a bad Andrew Lloyd Webber musical, walking around and you know, yeah. like the the message, like don't don't do anything risky, just pl- be cool. Like I, I, that's the way I talk to my four year old who does not listen, <laughs> well, which is which is a whole different thing. But yeah, this song I I think is is cloying. I've never put the song on a mixer playlist. Tony, back to you. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think we agree on this one. I, I, I uh, there's something about it. I, I would say the tempo is too slow, even for a ballad. It's it's like a dirge, man, and it makes it feel so long. It opens right up with this vocal beginning that's just like the song. I feel like maybe if it had like a little instrumental intro, it might warm me up more to it. And for some reason, also not on this dumb 2011 box set that I bought, um, (laughs) of the reissue, the video version does have a keyboard intro. Really? So if you watch the video, there's just a short intro on the keyboard before he sings that Hmm. should have been included as a mix on this, not the DJ. There's basically a version. This box set has the songs (laughs) you don't want to hear longer and some songs you don't want to hear shorter. this song either belongs in like the sequel to E.T., which hadn't come out yet. <laughs> the prequel. OK, the prequel to E.T. or like movies like Starman or, you know, what are the, you what, know, those like space what, movies? What, what's the tagline for E.T. too? still phoning? <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's moving on to bigger snacks like Kit Kats and I don't know, underground bars. Do you remember one of my favorite 80s stories is Eminem's was like, we won't be associated with this dumb movie. And then that's when they got Reese's Pieces and Reese's Pieces fucking took off. Yeah, Because that man. movie was such a hit. All anybody wanted was Reese's Pieces, but it's such a great, like, nobody gives Eminem's enough shit for that anymore, for turning down E.T. Yeah, they're the DECA audition uh, <laughs> of, of candy, E.T. candy. <laughs> totally. Uh, also, E.T. recorded uh, uh, New Year's Day 1963, or 62. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, if, yeah. if we're, if we're going to knock his lyrics, also there's another, what, what's the third verse? Don't go chasing polar bears. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is good advice. It's sage advice, yeah. 
uh, one of the big things about this song that Paul McCartney's commented on is obviously one of the biggest hits of, I think, actual R&B group uh, TLC from the mid-90s is, is Waterfalls. And yeah. they both share uh, Don't Go Ch- If we were at the keyboard, I'd play it for you right now. But they both share Don't Go Ch- uh, Jump in Waterfalls. I think the TLCs Don't Go Chase in Waterfalls. Yeah. But McCartney a couple times has been like, oh, I think it's a good song that they just nicked from me. You know, like in some weird Paul, like I, th- I think they nicked it. It's okay. John nicked from come together, you know? So I don't think Paul was ever pissed, but Paul acknowledged that waterfalls, one of the biggest hits of the nineties might have been inspired by his waterfalls. Yeah, maybe <laughs> it's a great song, by the way. I love the TLC version. I used to kind of mock it in the nineties. Cause I feel like I had to. And then as I got a little older, I'm like, Oh, this song is great. I vaguely remember it. I was more of an En Vogue guy. I liked the En Vogue. Well, th- then when it comes to waterfalls, Tony, you're never going to get it. In fact, <laughs> never going to get it, never going to break down. Get it, never. <laughs> I like En Vogue. Okay, then we go on to uh, another kind of a throwaway. Nobody knows. like the drum sound he got on this song they they're like real drums there's something dry and natural about it i i i love the sound of this song it goes into the one four five thing the blues progression thing which i find boring but other than that i like the sound of it yeah and those drums uh, one thing about that 2011 remaster is it sounds great and the drums especially i'm not sure what is streaming but the version on that remastered set, just the drums just kind of slice right through uh, yeah. your, your cans or your speakers. It, it's great. It's a decent Paul Rocker. Um, I think it kind of feels like OU's cousin from McCartney yeah. 1. It almost yeah. feels like a, a logical kind of conclusion to that. Um, I, I don't know. I think OU has slightly less words. Nobody knows this isn't exactly a crazy wordy song, but they're kind of just kind of cool Paul noodle rock songs. Yeah. I don't, I, the song itself doesn't do much for me, but I, I like that drum sound. I would love to have hear, hear more songs that sound like this song. Yeah. Yeah. It's a cool tune. It closes side one of the original record too. And side two, I think is where some of the dip in this album takes place 
much as I don't love, and again, it's tricky because I don't hate Temporary Secretary. I just think it's terrible. <laughs> um, waterfalls, I don't ever really need to hear. Um, uh, but side two is where I start to get a little like you know pull the kind of the kind of pull the collar a bit. Like Paul's got two very similar. He starts with a sandwich that is not very satisfying with two instrumental buns and maybe some fake meat in the middle, like a Beyond fucking burger or something in the middle. But this is not the strongest start to a McCartney side in his career, I think. Perhaps not a great start, but I like the song Front Parlor. I think it's a fun song. In fact, my notes on this are, here we go. For me, this is like, oh, groovy. This is like, I like these sounds. I know, I know you said Meredith Baxter, but it's also, you know, it's, it's it's kind of the precursor to like Nintendo 8-bit music, you know? Yes. It's like Paul playing Castlevania or something like that, <laughs> <laughs> you know? So my note for this is Front Parlor to me sounds like the Cantina band trying to play Oobla Dee Oobla Da. <laughs> See, like that to me sounds great. I, I want to go to Tatooine and check that out. I want to see them. This is the band that opens up for the Cantina band. Right. <laughs> uh, John Williams never had anything as good as uh, Front Parlor. By the way, called uh, in uh, creatively because it was recorded as McCartney was looking at his front parlor. Um, yep. Yeah, I, I, I mean, my note is I actually wrote it's good, but why? I've, again, I've never hated this song. It's just like, what's the? It's like he just should have called this album uh, "Noodles McGee" because he's just noodling <laughs> and he's pressing a button, then another button, then coming up with a great McCartney melody over the melody's beautiful and it's really upbeat and he does some cool things, but it's like, why? <laughs> well, yeah, but I mean, that's what I. I guess that's what I was saying about. McCartney 1970 with OU and uh, the Valentine's Mama Miss America. Yeah, and Valentine Day and stuff. Yeah. To me, that's like, it's the same thing, but he's just using different equipment now. He's using up to, up to date 1979 synths, which are fucking all the rage right now since, you know, whatever. What was the spooky show? What's it called? The Kids? Stranger Things? Yeah, Stranger Things. Spooky kids. In Europe, they call them spooky kids. Yeah. <laughs> no, the song's fun. Like, with that drum beat, whatever the hell it is, it sounds like, to me, it sounds like an electronic uh, mouth harp, you know? Doing, 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 doing. Uh, I like mm -hmm. the weird chord progression. You know, it doesn't just go into one, four, five. He could have easily just gone sloppy into one, four, five. He This time, he's, like, going into, like, surf modulations, like, half steps up, and it's fun. It's fun. I I dig it. It, it. it is definitely upbeat, and you give a great 
great point about how it's the evolved noodling instrumentals from the first McCartney. And there's, uh, when we talk about McCartney 3, there's, I think, some other similar comparisons, if not instrumentals. McCartney 3, which I know we're going to do uh, next week, like, so- every song's nine and a half minutes. And so it's <laughs> like, oh, here's another one called, it's got the words deep down in it, and it's 12 minutes. <laughs> hey, he's got a lot of deep going on. We'll have to do a deep, 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 deep dish on uh, Macca 3. <laughs> I smell a parody coming. Uh, no, never mind, I'm just having a stroke. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's noodling and it's fine and it's great, but you know, it's not, when I think of essential McCartney and the albums like Tug of War and Band on the Run and Ram and, uh, I'm not running to put side two of McCartney two on because this song is pleasant and fine. Um, when we move on to Summer's Day song, let's do it. It, it feels a little like Waterfalls. I'll just give you, I'll cut to the chase and I don't need it. But what's cool is the use of the same Mellotron that's from Strawberry Fields. Yeah, this puts me in the mind. You know that movie Strange Brew? Yeah, <laughs> Bob and Doug. Bob and Doug McKenzie. It was a favorite of mine uh, when I was a kid. And um, it reminds me of the, the hockey scene where the hockey players are attacking each other with that weird organ. The power of the force, stop you, you hosers. <laughs> it's so funny. This is like the, the space church version of uh, <laughs> of that. It's got like a classical feel to it, but with these like synthesizers and yeah, not my favorite. Not my, it's a little sleepy for me. It's got the same lethargy as Waterfalls. Yeah, it's like yeah. it's like so many albums. Paul smoked a lot of pot. Is this like Quaaludes, Paul? Like, <laughs> yeah, right. What was he on? We're like, well, it's a pretty song, but let's take it way slower. <laughs> no, it's like, please. Uh, I, I I will say I love the gore, the the last like verse. Uh, the harmonies are beautiful, and this was originally an instrumental he recorded, but then decided to add lyrics to it. Um, but those harmonies are beautiful um, toward the end. It's it's even in a song that's kind of boring, his taste is still as impeccable as ever. Yeah, yeah, there's definitely worse songs, that's for sure. We're grading on a, you know, a Macca scale. I- <laughs> I don't like that. I don't, I don't like that. I said that. <laughs> right. I'm going to need a Macca scale after the holidays. <laughs> uh, okay. Now we get to the controversially titled frozen. I'm just going to say this once frozen Jap. Uh, before you do, I was going to give you the in in Japan. It was actually titled on Japanese pressings, Frozen Japanese. Yes, exactly. Because the other version is considered offensive, right? Right. And yeah, this is 40 years ago. It was still, I think it was offensive 40 years ago, right? Pretty sure. 
Yeah. I wasn't as like hot as things are now, but it it was it was definitely a pejorative at the at the very least. Um, I don't know. In the eighties, my liberal Democrat father still refused to buy a non-American car, so I, I don't know. <laughs> right. So nineteen eighty-seven, I was like, "We're buying Chevy." I'm like, "You know, the war ended a little while ago." <laughs> right, right. <laughs> yeah, man, that stuff lingers. Well, so let's go. Title aside, um, the title obviously has some racial blind spots. We'll call them some cultural. Uh, I don't know. I'll leave it at that. Yeah. Oh, let's let's deal with the title actually. Okay, let's deal with the title. Yeah. Because um, here's some working titles for it: "Snow Scene from the Orient." There you go. There you go. <laughs> or "Crystalline Icicles Overhang the Little Cabin by the Ice Capped Mount Fuji." But he felt that all these titles sounded too clumsy, so he went with <laughs> "Frozen." <laughs> Jay I don't know. To me. I, I don't mind crystalline obstacles. <laughs> well, I can't say it. <laughs> <laughs> say it. Say it. <laughs> the title aside, it feels like Front Parlor's, you know, best friend or cousin. I, I already referred to <laughs> something else as being, you know, use cousin, but like. I like best friends. Yeah. It, they're, they're, there's just something. And you see what I mean about the sandwich, like kind of the shit sandwich where you start with Front Parlor. It's it's like a Big Mac. Front parlor's the bun and the sauce. So this is fun. I like the tangy sauce. It's not Thousand Island, but it is special. And then, uh, you know, uh, Summer's Day songs, the kind of the gray meat. Because that's the thing about a Big Mac. It's like in theory, sometimes it's like, oh, I'd love a Big Mac. And then you get one, you're like, oh, it's thin gray patties. Uh, that's how I like my patties, by the way, thin and gray. Um, and then, the you know, frozen Jap is kind of the warm pickle and the, the yucky lettuce in the bottom bun. Similar to Front Parlor, I actually, I, I quite like the music of this song. I love it. Um, it puts me in the mind of uh, Carter Burwell. The, he's the guy that does all those um, Coen Brothers soundtracks, and specifically like the Raising Arizona soundtrack that has kind of synths going on in it. Yeah, this song puts me in a good mood. Like I, I, I would start my day with this song and feel very pleasant. Both Front Parlor and Frozen Japanese, uh, which is also a great. Um, uh, oh fuck! I lost the joke because who sings Turning Japanese? Oh, um, Wall, Wall of Voodoo? No, the Vapors. The Vapors. The Vapors. Yeah, it's a great parody that Rick Moranis does of it on uh, SCTV. You get me turning up and turning down I'm turning in and turning round Turning Japanese, turning Japanese I really think so So both Front Parlor and Frozen Japanese uh, are fine and fun and upbeat and yeah, I do like them I just, I, I rank my McCartney albums on a pretty high curve 
and it just feels like wasted opportunities to not have some of the songs he recorded quickly thereafter for Tug of War. Um, I don't know if any of them would have made its way into this, but there was a, a, a renaissance coming for Paul as a songwriter shortly after this album was made. I'll give you that, man. Well, what do you think of the next song, Bogey Music? I think the fact that it's so weird, kind of doing that, that 50s thing, I think the weirdness of it saves it. Uh, I'm pretty sure at one point he says, you know it, suckers. <laughs> at one point <laughs> in the song, I'm like, all right. But yeah, it, 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 feels, it feels like Shanana on yeah. acid is what it feels like. Because it, it's weird. It's kind of that 50s progression and riff. But again, with the, with the echoey vocals, I, I think it's a fun tune. Yeah, I do too. I actually quite like this one. It goes on a little too long, but... I also have Sha Na Na written in my notes. <laughs> I have a, as a, a 1980s Sha Na Na commission. Uh, yeah, there's a, a huge delay on the vocals. It's like, uh, it's almost like they're coming in after a full, you know, like a whole note. Um, yeah, and the, the weird part is when it switches into the minor key stuff with the solos. It's great. And I also think it's his greatest drumming on this record and maybe uh, it's hard to say. I don't know. I, I, I was going to say on maybe all his solo records, like he keeps it together and he does those fills and it's, it's upbeat and it, the energy's great and he doesn't stray in tempo. It's good, man. I think the reason that's a great point. I think one of the reasons he drums so well on this is because it's inspired by all the music he loved listening to. It's got that kind of fifties and he's playing a bit ringo where he's, he's, Never, he's always just the tiniest hair behind the beat, and I think that's what helps the music kind of feel even more delayed as well. I, I, I think this is a great one. Then we get into this kind of a slow jam, funky thing, reggae almost, I would call it, right? Dark Room. Well, here's one where the tempo is a little fluid. I mean, it's it's not, again, I'm totally nitpicking on the guy. <laughs> he's playing all these instruments. He's doing everything. The tempo gets a little fluid here and there. but And then he picks it up at the end. That, that coda just kind of, the tempo, it's almost, it's like the mono she's leaving home comes in, where the song just <laughs> gets faster as, as you go. And originally, this was the shortest song on the record. Now for the, now that it's whatever, the year 2021, uh, we always hear the long version of everything. And for me, I think I prefer the short version. Yeah, I think short version or long version. Uh, my note for this is it's one of the weirdest tracks, I think, on any Paul McCartney album. It's just so weird. It's another McCartney song that doesn't sound like anything else. It almost presages The Fireman a little bit. This is another one that oh, you yeah. can, yeah, yeah. especially the uh, the first one with youth. Was that Strawberries, Ocean, Ships, Forest, I think, from 93? I think. But, but before it got, you know, the some of the later Fireman stuff is a bit more ornate. But, yeah, it's so it's, again, it I don't hate it. It's weird. It's kind of cool. I, I wrote, at this point, Columbia Records was like, what the fuck? 
<laughs> Columbia in Ca- because McCartney starting with Back to the Egg in North America switched to Columbia where the rest of the world was still EMI. EMI, of course, had Capital and Parlophone and the Beatles labels, but Paul jumped ship because Columbia in '78, I think, when they signed him, already had Billy Joel and Springsteen exploding. And it's still so cool to see some of the old Capital Apple McCartney albums on Columbia pressings because you see Band on the Run and um, the first McCartney album in Ram in your cassettes looking like a Billy Joel or a Springsteen cassette with, with that kind of Columbia <laughs> right. big. Is that uh, the white with the red? Yes. The white background, red, big blocky letters. Uh, so, so yes. So Capital sign or Columbia signs Paul to this at the time record setting deal. And the first two things he delivers are back to the egg and McCartney too. And that's why like by someone like at Columbia is listening and they get to dark room and go, Oh no. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what we, He's lost his way. What are we done? <laughs> oh, no. Yeah, it's a wild record. Well, he kind of brings it back home a little bit with this last song, One of These Days, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I feel like this is, uh, I've always called this the great lost McCartney ballad. This song, I mean, even like Great Day from Flaming Pie made its way to, I think, the Pure McCartney compilation. Uh, this song has never been on any compilation. It's only existed as the closing official track on McCartney 2. And it just fascinating to me because it's it's gorgeous. Yeah, I guess it was written after a Hare Krishna devotee. Is that how you say that? Uh, came to visit. And I guess he said that the essence of this Hare Krishna devotee carried into the song. And again, he's got some heavy stereo delay on these vocals. He was really into delay. Yeah. I always love Tom Delay. I mean, when you think about the great, <laughs> great right-wing politicians, McCartney's champion. One of the great. <laughs> One of the great. <laughs> um, yeah, fuck that guy, too. Um, yeah, I, I feel if you really listen to it, this must be it. I've never read this anywhere. But in my mind, this is kind of where tug, the seeds for Tug of War came from. Because Tug okay. of War, while, while in a different key, which kicks off his next official studio album, uh, Tug of War, um, sounds directly influenced by this. I mean, obviously, the George Martin scoring takes Tug of War elsewhere, but the way it starts as a nice little acoustic ballad, it seems like McCartney was really working on those beautiful ballads again because a bunch surfaced on both Tug of War and Pipes of Peace, the songs of which were both written during the same session. But yeah, this is, uh, I, I think this is one of the great lost Paul McCartney songs. And one of the things I wanted to say, Tony, both this and McCartney 3 end with these simple little ballads. So many McCartney albums, whether they end with uh, an overproduced ballad or like a <laughs> rocker or like a show tune, like Backseat of My Car, mm, yeah. it's rare for McCartney albums to end with these just acoustic guitar ballads. Flaming Pie did it. But so do McCartney 2 and McCartney 3, and I think that's a neat connection. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, and like you say, it's almost kind of like a, what do you call it, like a trailer for the next album or something like that. Expect more of this and less frozen Japanese. (laughs) (laughs) One of these days when my feet are on the ground I'm gonna look around and see 
We get into the extras here, shall we? Yeah. So there's two versions of a song called Blue Sway. The first one to me sounds like Beretta, you know, goes on a date. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> uh, yeah, it's, it sounds like Beretta goes on a date with the Miami Vice soundtrack is what it sounds yeah. like to me. Detective Paul <laughs> investigates the <laughs> Miami disco forensics. <laughs> This is one that Paul, uh, this was a revelation to me when it, when it came out of the box set, but Paul loved this one enough. That sax was added um, in right around the press to play sessions. He went back really? to revisit this one in 86. So you're getting what you're hearing now has overdubs in the mid eighties from the original session in, um, in 79. That's wild. Yeah. I noticed it was credited to McCartney and a guy named Richard Niles, which I found curious. He's the founder of Niles, Illinois. <laughs> <laughs> they got an Al's. <laughs> yeah, I guess he was a broadcaster, producer, guitarist, arranger. All right, I guess he helped him write yeah, it. I think he did the strings for this as well. But it's a nice song. They actually made a video for when they did the 2011 Deluxe Package. But, you know, again, it's, 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 it's kind of featherweight, but it's beautifully orchestrated. Yeah. Uh, there's the live version of coming up from Glasgow, which features horns in it, which is cool. And again, on the deluxe issue, that's the extended live version. So it's stuff you've never heard before. And they chop off the count in at the top and they don't mention <laughs> Kenny Doblich. It's mystifying. <laughs> and then we've got check my machine. This song has always had a similar to Temporary Secretary. This is one of those songs that we would play, ironically, in the 90s and uh, have a good old time just goofing on it. Uh, but I, it was a, a hit. It's a, it's a great song. I actually prefer this way to Temporary Secretary. I love the reggae feel of this thing. Um, it's weird hearing, I think it's Sylvester and Tweety. Yeah. Uh, at like yes, this cartoon samples at the top. It's from... Um, a Mary Melody's cartoon called Tweet Zoo. Uh, amazing. <laughs> that. All right. Now name the Shakespeare passage that, that ends I am the walrus. Right, right. I, I don't know that one, but I know what you're talking about. We all do. I think it's King Lear. <laughs> is that Sit what you is? down, father. Rest you. Yeah. Rest you. Um, yeah. Uh, this one, uh, which I never realized, uh, this was the B-side, I'm pretty sure, to Waterfalls. I think this was uh, so this is was known and it wasn't really known in the States because Waterfalls didn't move any copies. No. So people didn't really discover this till it was tacked on as a bonus track for that first Capital CD reissue of this thing. Um, I think it's funny. Apparently, this was a huge hit in Brazil. Yes. In the clubs. Uh, this and Hope of Deliverance are two songs that stiffed in the U.S. charts and were wild hits in Brazil. Yeah. 
Yeah, I like it. I like the banjo. I think that's a banjo on there, right? Yeah, it sounds like it. Yeah, it's cool. That's a cool choice. Give it a spin. Give it a nice 10-minute spin. Speaking of 10 minutes, Secret Friend. What do you think of this one, man? Cool sounds, bro. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, this, this was actually the B-side to Temporary Secretary. So this is another B-side. inch yeah. To to the 12-inch. So this really didn't become known until that 88 issue as well. It almost feels like the beginnings of the Gregorian chant phase that came in the late 80s, early 90s. That kind of like that weird chanty Enya. That's I I, like I. But again, just because something's prescient doesn't mean it's good. (laughs) Like just because something's forward looking need not mean it's of quality. (laughs) And it doesn't end. I know. Yeah. So it's 10 and a half minutes long, though. There is a hypnotic quality to it. You know, there's the, got the claves going on. There's kind of a Latin feel. Again, you've got this real bendy kind of sequencing going on. Like I could see a lot of people just like getting lost in this song, you know, and just dropping out. Just they get stuck in a song and you never see them again. Like leaving school? (laughs) (laughs) Like leaving life. Like they moved to Slab City in, in the desert. I feel like, TJ, if you ever see me just like walking down the side of a highway, I'm probably lost in Secret Friend. My, <laughs> my best friend, Secret Friend by Paul McCartney. <laughs> oh, shit. Hey, anybody listening in the greater California area, if you go check out my friend Tony, I'd really appreciate it. Just knock three times. So, yeah, so Secret Friend is like the original Coachella. <laughs> Secret Brand is just... <laughs> You're right. It is. Yeah, it is. Everyone's fucking filthy. <laughs> it's very Chill Wave. It's very 20 years before Chill Wave. Another one, Bogey Wobble. Uh, again, a lot of these are the odds and ends. These are these tw- of the 20 songs that he was making music to play for his friends in his car. Uh, I wrote down that this is good music to be high to and that it has kind of a trauma films olympic quality to it mm. if that makes like the toxic avenger but <laughs> if he was in the olympics yeah it's again it's this this is probably the least necessary deluxe edition <laughs> I mean, one could argue that the first McCartney deluxe edition is bullshit because so many of the bonus tracks are like songs from McCartney performed in 79 by Lawrence Juber. Right. Which is 
they're pleasant to hear live out of sun, but there's nothing to do with the making of the record. That's nine years later. But this, these bonus tracks are decidedly inessential, except for the last song I'm going to bring up after your list is done. Cause I don't know if it's on your list, Oh, but we're going to end with it. So once your list is done, all right, I'm going to throw a bonus track at you. All right. I'll, Unless you bring it up. So we'll see. Well, let's find out. Yeah. Well, we've got, there's like a two songs in one with Mr. H Adam and, you know, I'll get you, baby. It's about six minutes long. It's it's Paul's attempt, like he was doing dad's new wave. This is dad's, you know, punk rock, Devo style punk rock. It's very uh, sci-fi sounding. And to me, it could be like the B-side of Pac-Man fever or something like that, you know? Hey, Buckner and Garcia, <laughs> my generation, Simon and Garfunkel. <laughs> We've got another one, all you horse riders. Again, this is, uh, yeah, this is very like pre chill wave silliness. I do like it. There's like a Grandmaster Flash white lines, kind of a synth run going on throughout it. Yeah. So I wrote down music can be fun. I think I was high when I was listening to this stuff. You also bring up one of the great like questions, I think, in rock where like, who does the better versions of White Line, Sugar Hill Gang or Duran Duran's cover? Oh, Sugar Hill. <laughs> I, oh, got it, got it. I'm got obviously it. I'm being <laughs> sorry, facetious. Sorry, that was so you weird. You know me better than that. That was so weird when Duran Duran covered White Lines in like '93, four, something like, <laughs> it's like that. Like, what? First of all, Duran Duran's back, and they're covering music that they shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> they, they were hungry like the wolf for another fucking payday. I guess. That's what they were hungry for. I guess. Uh, Tony, uh, we don't even need to edit this back in, but we need to mention that Mr. H. Adam has Linda McCartney singing. Yes. And it's, I like it. it's the only song McCartney opens with the phrase Shangri-La versus the village people. Yeah. And that's when I'm like, well, okay, I can turn this off. Thank <laughs> you for the warning. But yeah, man, just to get to all the horses song, not to be confused with the opener to Guys and Dolls, which is one of the great <laughs> openers in the history. I got the horse right here. His name is Paul Revere. <laughs> The horse kind of clip clops, and he he kind of begins it with like a horse instruction. Yeah, he's it's just weird. Yeah, it, he he takes you to a place. Which I guess he's at a horse track or horse rehearsal. I don't know what, but <laughs> he's conducting it. We always get so nervous before opening night. When we are our final horse rehearsal. <laughs> well, there's that theater that used to be down in Uptown, where or uh, excuse me, in um, Old Town, with the horses, um, just south of Second City. Uh, off of Orleans, there's that ho- I.O. <laughs> <laughs> I.O. With the, the Charnas Theater? Yeah, with the horse stable in it. No, I forget. <laughs> it's like Noble Horse Theater or something like that. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. That was one of the few places you could get a parking space near Second City, and you'd park it by these horses. <laughs> there, I, I got to say, living in Chicago, there is nothing better as a kid than watching a horse slowly get tortured on beautiful Michigan <laughs> Avenue, fighting with 146 double fucking accordion buses yeah. and, and cabbies. That always made me so mad. I'm like, I, I people are like, oh, it's so beautiful. Like, you're 
killing this horse. Yeah, this horse ain't having fun. Yeah, <laughs> that's my horse. favorite Shania Twain record. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, let's see what else we got. I got Blue Sway Two, which again, like this is a, another way too long song. But here's what this song is: If you're high and it's after midnight and you're having a midnight snack, put this song on and just jive out <laughs> salsa and chips. <laughs> Yes, preferably. <laughs> I just said the stupidest thing in the world. <laughs> Jive out. <laughs> you got to end every episode that way now. Jive out. <laughs> All right, Jive out, guys. <laughs> so, anything else on your list before we close with uh, one that I I have? Well, on the bonus tracks is Wonderful Christmas Time. That's I don't know. That's the one. I wasn't okay, sure if you were okay. going to go there. I love it. Let's do it because we just had it. Uh, one could argue of all the weird songs, it is weirder than anything else on this record. That Wonderful <laughs> Christmas Time, which has inane lyrics and inane melody, inane production, and has become yeah. a fucking holiday standard. Paul McCartney's made more money off that song, which he, he brought back out of mothballs about, he did it live in Glasgow, Christmas of 79, then didn't do it again till I think 09 or 2010. So he's right. kind of brought it back. That song is crazy. It makes no sense. It's psychopathic. And it's one of the most popular Christmas songs ever. Now, as a Christmas song, do you like it? You like Christmas music. Uh, it's tricky because the bar is set so high by Happy Xmas, the John and Yoko gift yeah. to Christmas, that yeah, like I like what I like Wonderful Christmas Time as a joke. There you go, uh, and it's cool to hear Paul singing, but like that's okay in terms of like the Christmas carols that like touch me. Um, uh, John and Yoko's Happy Christmas brings tears to my eyes. This one makes me go. I hear it start and I go. Please don't be the extended version. Please don't be the extended version. <laughs> I, I totally get you. I totally, that makes a lot of sense. Like, this is a song you hear at Bed Bath & Beyond, and it's like, oh, okay. <laughs> and now maybe you actually might purchase that thing. You know what I mean? I think it actually does promote commerce. <laughs> All the capitalists. <laughs> the party's on. The spirit's up. We're here tonight, and that's enough. It's, it is fun. I will say I don't remember ever hearing it really until recently, until like the last 10 years maybe. Uh, it was not a hit in the States. It's another song like Mull of Kintyre, to right. a lesser extent, Waterfalls. But Wonderful Christmas Time was massive in the UK. Uh, and in the States, I again, if it charted, it was low. Um, uh, that was another kind of failure for Paul on Columbia. The single, this big Christmas single, kind of tanked. So it's it, the now in the first CD issues, Wonderful Christmas Time, along with its unfortunate B-side, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reggae, you heard that right, were included on the Back to the Egg CD. So it's funny how, <laughs> yeah, uh, from a timing standpoint, <laughs> yeah, weird, right? That one's goofball. Yeah, it's so strange. But this is solo McCartney, um, and it's just as weird as anything on this record, and probably, with all due respect to coming up, the most known song of this era. Yeah, yeah. I'll say one last thing about it. It actually is the closest thing Paul ever got to sounding like the Star Wars uh, Christmas single of What Can You Get a Wookiee for Christmas When He Already Has a Comb. <laughs> <laughs> I can't you get a Wookiee for Christmas When He 
Well, dig it. Like a Rolling Stone, like the FBI. So <laughs> before we close off this episode, Tony, McCartney 1 or McCartney 2? And next week we'll look at McCartney 3. But of the two first self-titled albums, mm. McCartney 1 from 70, McCartney 2 from 80, which do you pick? That's hard, man. That's actually hard. I guess it depends on the day. If I'm feeling goofy, I pick two. But if I'm feeling like, oh, I need a little, I don't know, real music, <laughs> I pick one because I like songs like Junk. Uh, yeah, what do you think? Uh, I choose McCartney 1 over McCartney 2. And part of the reason is the best songs on McCartney 1, with the exception of Coming Up, are better than anything on McCartney 2. Because as much as there's some fun kind of novelty songs and one of these days is pretty, Coming Up's a standard. But after that, it's... There's no other remote standard. McCartney, the first McCartney, maybe I'm amazed, Every Night, Junk, uh, has three songs that run circles around anything on McCartney 2, and I kind of judge it. I prefer the experimental instrumentals on McCartney 2. Much as I dogged him, McCartney, the first McCartney instrumental jams feel even more aimless because they don't have the interesting instrumentation. Yeah. So I do prefer the experimental side of McCartney too. And Karina Kroark and S and D. I mean, like, uh, thank you. So, I, my ears couldn't handle those words. So uh, our listeners our virginal Christmas <laughs> listeners. Um, but yeah, as an album, as an experience, I think also given its proximity to Abbey Road, and that's still Paul riding on that vibe. McCartney won over McCartney too. Yeah, I mean, yeah, yeah. Makes sense. I'd have to say the same thing. But sometimes I just want to hear Temporary Secretary. Well, why don't you <laughs> come on to my dark room? <laughs> Shangri-Las versus the village people. Well, next week we'll tackle three, which just came out at this taping like a week or so ago. That's right. We've both had a chance to listen to it, to fully digest it. A lot of McCartney records are what they call growers, which means you probably should see a, a doctor. And also <laughs> it means the more you hear it, the more you like it. And Tony and I are going to dissect that. And we're really going to delve into Ringo Starr's Bad Boy. That's next on the Untitled Beatles broad, uh, podcast broadcast. <laughs> Jive out. Untitled Beatles podcast. Like and subscribe. <laughs>